David Cancel has started five companies, most recently Drift. Drift is a conversational marketing and sales platform. David has a depth of engineering skills and a breadth of business experience that make him an amazing source of knowledge. In today's episode, David discusses topics ranging from the technical details of making a machine learning driven sales platform to the battle scars of his early career when he spent a lot of time building products that people did not want. He has since found success by focusing on building software that the market has shown a desire for. Chatbots were a particularly popular, trendy subject a few years ago. The success of chatbots manifested in them fading into the background and becoming a subtle, increasing part of our everyday conversations and interactions. Not every online interaction can be replaced by a chatbot, but many online interactions can be made more efficient by using chatbots. Chatbots can serve well-defined information, like product features or the hours of operation of a business. When a chatbot gets a question that it cannot answer, the bot can route the conversation to a human. When a customer lands on a web page of a company using Drift, they see a chat box appear in the corner of the screen. The customer is able to communicate through that chat box with a bot that represents the company. The customer can learn about the product, schedule a call with a salesperson, and get other useful utilities from the Drift sales bot. So for example, if I needed to buy podcast transcription software, let's say I wanted to get my podcasts transcribed into some text format, and I'm shopping around, I'm looking for different vendors that can sell me that software. On one site, I might see a little chat box in the lower right-hand corner that is the Drift sales bot, and I can talk to that sales bot about the pricing of the transcription software, what's the value of it, and that bot can route me to a human salesperson if I need it. The Drift chatbot messaging system is handled by Elixir, which is a platform or a programming language framework on top of Erlang. We have done a past show about Elixir. We've also reported on Erlang. Erlang is widely known as the messaging language that was used to scale WhatsApp while maintaining high availability. On the back end, Java services take the interactions from the DriftBot and pull it into a CRM, which allows sales and marketing people to manage information about the customers that are interacting with the chatbot. David gives lots more detail around the engineering stack, the deployment model, and his thoughts on the business and modern engineering. Before we get started, I want to mention we recently launched a new podcast, FinTech Daily. FinTech Daily is about payments, cryptocurrencies, trading, and the intersection between finance and technology. You can find it on fintechdaily.co or on Apple or Google Podcasts. We're looking for other hosts who want to participate. If you are interested in becoming a host for FinTech Daily, send us an email, host at fintechdaily.co. We're very early in FinTech Daily, and we'd love to get your opinions on the shaping of the show from reporting on all of these different fintech companies like challenger banks and cryptocurrencies and payments companies. There is a lot of depth to cover in fintech, and we're hoping to really bring the same amount of depth that we bring to Software Engineering Daily to covering the topics within fintech daily. So I hope you like it. I hope you check it out. And let's get on with this episode. David Cancel, you're the CEO and co-founder of Drift. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Your company, Drift, makes a chat interface that appears on sites, and it helps with the sales process of a product. Explain what Drift does. Yeah, basically what Drift does is, like you said, it sits on your website. It's a, it's a chatbot, and it basically helps people get answers to their question immediately. And so... Uh, it basically is like a fast pass or a fast lane around uh, the typical marketing and sales process. So, you know, we're trying to build software that connects people to people directly. And we use bots in order to find the right place to, to send your request. Let's say I'm looking at some new tools to run my podcast company. So, for example, I might want to get my podcast transcribed because many people like to read the podcast rather than listen to it. 
So I go to the home pages of several different sites that can sell me podcast transcription tools. They all have different ways of selling to me. Tell me about how some of these sales processes might vary. Yeah, so, you know, what we learned and what we see in most, when you're trying to buy, when you're a business, like yourself, trying to buy from another business, typically what you end up going to is a website that has a contact form. You fill out a contact form of some sort or a demo request form or, you know, send me information form. And then you probably get a series of emails and then maybe someone will get back to you, maybe not. And you're left wondering, how do I get someone at this business to actually talk to me? And so that used to work, right? In the old world, you know, 10 years ago, that would work because companies had all the control. They controlled demand. You know, they were the only game in town. But now we believe that, you know, there's an infinite supply of products and services out there and that the buyer, all of us are in control. And in that world, we want an answer to our question now, right? Like, you know, the analogy I always use, like, think about your website as a store. If you were to walk into a store and the only way for that store to sell you something is for you to walk in and leave your name, phone number, and email address on a piece of paper, and then for them to send you a bunch of uh, mail in the post, and maybe one day they would call you and say, okay, you can come in now, we'll sell you something, you would think I was in crazy. But that is the modern experience for B2B uh, today on the web. So we say instead, why don't you have someone that can greet you 24 7, 365, and route you to the right person so that they can treat you like a person? So let's zoom in on that example. So contrast the experience I might have if I go to one of these podcast transcription software sites and I enter in my contact information in some kind of form. I ask them to contact me. Maybe it's 11 p.m. So it's you know, there's nobody's manning the site right now versus if that site had DriftBot, which is your bot where I can just chat with it and maybe learn some information about the transcription software, the pricing. Tell me about how those experiences might vary for the customer. Yeah. So for the customer, let's say in that experience right there, what would happen is the everyone was asleep. They were, no one was around. And so DriftBot would step in and try to answer your questions. And if you wanted to talk to someone and we knew that everyone was asleep in that business, what we would do is offer up the calendar of the person who you should speak to and say, hey, by the way, David's not around right now. He's asleep. Uh, Here's his calendar. Why don't you choose the time that's most convenient to you, the customer, not the business, but you, for them to get back to you? And would you like them to email you, call you, you know, Zoom you, Zencaster you, whatever it is. But all of a sudden, you know, you're turning the dynamic around and it's on my terms as a buyer versus me waiting around wondering when this business is going to get back to me. So before you started this business, you were chief product officer at HubSpot. And HubSpot, I think of as at the leading edge of how sales and marketing uh, and automation works together. And it makes people who are in those kinds of roles much more effective and efficient. And we we used HubSpot for a while at Software Engineering Daily. You know, in, in that case, it was it allowed us, you know, which is just me and Erica, my co-founder, she, she and I, neither of us have any experience in sales and marketing, but we were able to have sales and marketing facilities from HubSpot. So when you were there for three or four years, what did you learn about how sales and marketing software was changing. How did that eventually lead to you starting Drift? (laughs) It's a great question. I learned so much during that process. I'd say, you know, the thing that I came away from, I learned so much in the sales and marketing process, being an engineer myself originally. And what we learned was we were trying to create this, what we called inbound back then, they still call inbound, right? This inbound experience. So instead of relying on advertising and cold calls and all this stuff, we said, turn your website into a magnet. We built tools to allow that get people to your website, and then have a better experience because of that. But the tools that we were building were for marketers and for salespeople to be better marketers and to sell more to their customer base. And that was the perspective that we had. Very different perspective than when I started Drift. You know, our perspective is we're not building tools to help you sell better, right? We're building tools to help your buyers buy. Very, it seems subtle, but it's totally different. So our emphasis is on the end user, the end customer, not on the salesperson or the marketer. 
And it just changes fundamentally the way that we're doing things and how we prioritize what we're doing. The other thing that I learned was what we were doing from an inbound perspective was amazing and it was right for the time and it continues to be powerful. But we live in a different time, right? Building your website into a magnet is not enough, right? Because now so much happens that's even outside of your website. Uh, Two, you probably have way more competitors than you did back then. So ranking for something on Google, let's say, is pretty hard where it wasn't in 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11, et cetera. And today we say the buyer has all the control. And so how do we build tools for that world where the buyer has all the control? They want to be able to message and have conversations with the brands and the companies. And the emphasis now is on the conversation and the customer versus the salesperson, the marketer, and tools to help them sell better. Now, a lot of the challenges when I look at at this company seem to be around product design rather than engineering implementation, at least in the early stages of the company. So like when I look at the product, to me, it looks like there's a lot of uh, UX challenges, maybe challenges about how the company adopts DriftBot, how they integrate it into their website. And then once you get some volume and you get a high interaction and you get a better understanding of how people are using DriftBot and interacting with it, then you get into engineering problems, like significant engineering problems, like what kinds of machine learning can we do? What kinds of statistical analysis can we do? Is that an accurate assessment or were there some some serious engineering problems that you dealt with in the upfront, the first iteration of the product? There's definitely been, there's more engineering problems that we dealt with at this company at Drift than any other that I've ever been a part of. And the reason is that all the other models were built you know, on an existing paradigm. And that paradigm was, you know, the relational database and that everything could fit neatly in a relational database. And we'd have things entered in nicely by humans into CRMs and into other systems, basically relational databases. And we could create key relationships during those things and we could find them and and make them all accessible, right? That's the model that Salesforce popularized. That's the model that every that we use at HubSpot, that's the model that every tool in sales and marketing and beyond, you know, business software uses. It's the relational database model. And we set out from the beginning to not build on that paradigm, but to be start to start working on a new paradigm, which was built entirely on conversation data. And as you can imagine, conversation data is super messy and complicated, and there's no referential integrity that you can have in this system. Any user could enter in anything. And so we had to make inferences. We have to make predictions. We have to infer what the customer might mean from this highly unstructured piece of data. And so the technical challenges are are pretty deep. And one of the inferences that we have to make is who is the best person to deal with this person within an organization. And that has depending on the size of the organization, for a very large organization, you could imagine has super complicated rules about routing and about preferences and who gets what and how do they get notified. So, But that's the beauty of what we've been building, which is from the customer standpoint, it should seem simple. And then from a data model standpoint and from an engineering standpoint, it's super complicated underneath. And that's the whole point. Like the customer doesn't care how it happens. Like that's our problem to deal with, but there's super geeky engineering problems that we have to deal with. And is that a challenge because companies are onboarding and moving their data sets that they already have in in some unstructured data model onto Drift? Or is it because just the Greenfield, even just the Greenfield customer case, there's so much multiplicity in the different ways that they might want to do that routing that building a really flexible model for how even new customers can use it is an engineering challenge. Yeah, it's it's kind of a little both. So I'd say they are moving kind of metadata that they have, which is metadata about like, how do they route things? Where does it go? How do we have preferences? What are hours? All those kind of things. So those exist today and they move those in. And then it's all greenfield because the minute that we are used by a customer, we start to collect or we start to be in the middle of conversation data between the customer and the business. And there it's totally green, right? And in, in those cases, it was amazing. Even in the beginning stages of the company, we would see things like we would instantly have more customer insights within that unstructured, messy, crazy data only coming in through one channel at the time, which was chat, then would be in that company's CRM 
which was highly structured, highly disciplined, had been there for a long time because the data model was so different. Like the data model behind CRM and every business used today is this. It's a metadata database, right, that collects information that describes an activity or a conversation, but it doesn't have the activity or the conversation in the data model, just information that describes it. And all of that information is largely inputted by humans. So it's error prone, but it is controlled. And we kind of like woke up one day when we were starting Drift and said, wait, the whole model is crazy because historically it made sense because you couldn't be in the middle of the conversation. But now that you could be in the middle of the conversation, why would all the data just be metadata entered in by humans who don't want to enter the data in and that be the totality of the CRM? Instead, we said, look, if we look within the conversation data, we can have answers to questions like, who are the competitors that your your customers are comparing you to? How will they measure success? Who have they talked to? How do they feel from a happiness standpoint? Like all of this kind of from a sentiment standpoint, all these things are just in the conversation stream itself. But if you were to ask the same questions and I did of the executives within that company or the heads of sales or the heads of marketing, you know, who are the top three competitors you're being compared against, you know, this week, last month in this segment, what have you, they would say, I don't know, right? Unless I predefine that piece of metadata into my data model in the CRM and then enforced people to comply with filling out that field, those being the salespeople and the people qualifying, I wouldn't know. How would I know that, right? And we'd say, well, the, the customer is telling you right now, and we can show you that. Is the fundamental issue there that if I am a customer, I go to a website, I'm looking at podcast transcription software, I begin chatting with DriftBot, and DriftBot is telling me perhaps some information about the, the software, and I'm giving DriftBot information in an unstructured fashion. I'm typing paragraphs. And in an ideal world, you would be able to parse those paragraphs of text, those unstructured paragraphs of text that the customer is typing into structured fields that you could potentially put into the CRM. Things about customer preferences, maybe the customer's phone number, the customer's buying patterns, these kinds of things. The challenge there is that you're doing a transform on the unstructured data of paragraphs into the structured data of a CRM. Exactly. So in our data model, if you think about it from that standpoint, we have to have things that is not only the translation of that, but the predicted accuracy of that translation. So we have to have a confidence score right in other words of that and then as we learn more or that person shifts in in the relationship maybe those inferences have changed right so what does that mean so you imagine a data model that is part of it is unstructured data that you have access to the other is predictions that we've made based on that unstructured data and the third is a pretty sophisticated kind of social graph of the relationship and states and things that have happened and then another layer which is automated actions that our bots may have taken based on those inferences or based on different event states, right? Like you have to put all this together to really understand what's happening with a customer interaction, which probably similar to a human kind of interaction, if you were to, to have that in a real world kind of like store analogy, right? You're, all these sophisticated things are happening and people are making inferences or assumptions or things like that. And we have to figure out a way to model that and be able to convey our confidence in that. When you started Drift, I believe that most of the the machine learning APIs, like the, the really nice ones that you get on Google Cloud, for example, that do NLP and uh, sentiment inference and those kinds of things where you just send a block of text and it figures out things magically for you those were not available yet like that you you were a few years before that so did you have to roll your own like nlp implementations in order to figure out the structure of this this unstructured data yeah we had to roll most almost everything internally and then the stuff from google and others started to come out kind of a little bit later and so we've used some we use some of that stuff somewhere but as you imagine it's kind of domain very domain specific when we use different things and we're constantly iterating on that stuff right now uh, we just acquired a company which we haven't announced yet uh, that has been doing pretty deep on this side of things on the nlp side which we'll announce soon but like 
Yeah, there's most of it we had a home role and then which is like most things, you know, early on. And then uh, as new capabilities have come on board, we've looked at them. Sometimes we use them, sometimes we don't. And again, then that changes the data model, too, because the what you're using, the tools that you're using or the analysis that you're doing is is changing. So like if you we think back to like you know, famous kind of Google PageRank stuff, right? Like there was a confident PageRank was a, you know, confidence level of an authority score based on citations on the web. But those were kind of like static, right? Those are static citations. Sure, more citations were growing and so your influence can grow over time. But the, you know, that was a largely static model versus this, which we're trying to make predictions on what language means and kind of nuance in there. And so it's, it's pretty sophisticated. It's also, as you can imagine, being an engineer, super fun, right? Because we don't, it's all kind of the age of the pirate, right? I felt like when I first started building stuff online, you know, was in the mid 90s, commercial stuff that is. And, you know, I felt like we were like pirates back then because we were, had to invent everything. Like there were no, there was no stack exchange. There was no Google. There was nothing to go look. We didn't have models to see. We mostly read RFCs to try to figure out how different protocols were working and kind of reverse engineered most of the stuff. And I felt like at the beginning of Drift, we're very much at that stage now. But obviously things are moving pretty quickly. Yeah, I think you're actually really well positioned to capture, I mean, I'm sure you know this, but to capture a lot of the value that is, it's on a clear trajectory with, with you know, you look at things like in Gmail with the autoresponder thing, I don't, you, you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm, of course. Yeah. So like the Gmail autoresponder where now if you use Gmail, you see three or four little suggested responses. And when this feature first came out, it was like, okay, it wasn't that great. You know, you would have suggestions like, yes, that time works for me. And you're like, that's, a, that's, that's not contextually relevant to me. That's not something I should click. But now you have really, really good suggestions. It's, I think it's integrated with your calendar sometimes. And then you, you see these things like the, the Google thing where you can, you know, reserve a restaurant. I think they kind of rolled that back because it was scaring people. But it seems like you're in really good shape. So what do you think, what kinds of opportunities are around the corner when some of these technologies just incrementally improve for you? How do you think you'll be able to leverage them and how will they, well, I guess, how will they add more leverage to the salespeople and the businesses that, that use Drift? So I think like you highlighted there, it's a super exciting time. And so it's the beginning, very beginning, you know, inning of this. And so we see, you know, from ourselves, from an opportunity standpoint, like we're just in the beginning of one conversational channel, which is chat. We've extended into email, we'll extend into voice, we'll extend into video, we'll extend into all these different ways of communicating, and they all bring their own problem set. And so super exciting about that. I think, you know, fundamentally what we believe is that when we can do all this stuff and when we can assist the buyer and then assist the salesperson, the marketer inside the company, we're basically, most of what we're doing is removing a lot of the grunt repetitive, you know, copy and paste kind of work that most people, most knowledge workers, all of us, right? Like, I don't know if people use, still use that term, but like all of us are doing every day. And if we're successful, we'll be letting them really focus on the things that they're good at, whether it's, you know, being creative on the marketing side, whether it's the relationship from the sales standpoint. We don't see a world, this kind of uh, scary world of like, oh, this is going to replace everything and everyone. We just think jobs will adapt and we'll be able to focus more on the things that we're uniquely suited at versus the grunt work that we've been doing. Because most of what we've been doing is kind of the factory equivalent of digital, right? We call it digital paperwork. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, Let's talk a little bit more about the engineering side of things. Can you give me an overview of your infrastructure? Sure. Well, I'd say, you know, I'd start with, you know, we're about 35% of the team is engineering. And I set a a crazy goal, which we'll see if I can hit in 2019 for 50% of the company to be engineering. And so myself, my co-founder is the CTO. I'm the CEO, both from engineering backgrounds. And so we think that engineering not only be part of the product creation process, but we will have embedded engineering teams as from a model standpoint within every part of the organization, whether that's sales, marketing, uh, customer success, finance, etc which we could go on about for a while. But from a stack standpoint, we are largely based on Java, Elixir, 
in JavaScript, you know, both on, re, you know, from a React standpoint. So we use React here as our framework. Uh, we use React Native for iOS stuff. And we're just in the beginning of some, some Android work that we're doing, but we're mostly iOS and, uh, and web at this point. And so I'd say the teams are largely split between Java and then some Elixir and some other frameworks within the organization. No Go so far, but uh, a lot of Java and then uh, JavaScript and front-end developers. Elixir is, I believe, a layer on top of Erlang. Is that right? That That's correct. And we, at a past company, my co-founder and I started, worked at a long time ago, we were kind of early Erlang users, which was, you know, Erlang is amazing, not to geek out too much, but Erlang's amazing. You know, first time I saw it, I was like, this is the first alien technology that I've seen, because it was so different from a, from a coding standpoint than anything else. And then the first time that I saw React Native, I thought the same thing again. I was like, this is alien technology here, because I don't know what any of this means. Yeah, the syntax is pretty unfamiliar to people who, who haven't spent much time in it. Now, I know WhatsApp is built on Erlang, and they talked about the the importance of Erlang for keeping their the durability of their messaging system up is was that the motivation for using Elixir because you're fundamentally a messaging company yeah you know it's basically has the an easier version right it's a framework on top of Erlang Erlang's pretty daunting for a lot of people to understand and Erlang was written by largely people at Ericsson the phone company years ago. And the reason that we started to use it was super low latency, uh, distributed by nature, right, in, in the way that it works. And then almost the most important part about it was its fault tolerant nature. So it was, and this was the first thing that blew me away years ago when we were using Erlang was like that you could really have the notion of being able to hot swap in between processes, which was like, I, I still don't really understand how it works, but <laughs> even the using it for so long. But that was kind of a notion that was built into it. And that was such a hard problem for us to solve in the past when we built stuff in Java. And, you know, I used to write in C and C++ and long, 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 many years ago. But like, that was a, a really hard kind of computer science problem. And it was kind of built into the very nature. It was not an add-on. It was built into the core of, of Erlang. And so those were the three reasons that, that we started to use it. Could you articulate that problem a little in more detail, the hot swap problem? Is that what you call it? Yeah. problem that we would always run into in early days of the web when I was coding was that imagine that, uh, and we were using Unix-based systems, so process-based systems, and so that you can imagine that a connection came in from, let's say, a website to make it easy. And that was that was forked onto a certain process on the system. Now, if that process died, you would lose the connection between that end user and the website, right? And we built kind of workarounds on how to do that. So, and again, we were largely working in a stateless world back then. And then we relied on cookies to add state, but we had broken kind of the state and the connection. And then over time, when you wanted to get someone on, from an overloaded machine or overloaded set of processes to a new machine, you would ha run into this swap problem, which is how do we take active connections? Let's say you're viewing something right now or watching a video or listening to a, a voice thing on the internet. How could we take your incoming connection and swap you over to another set of machines dynamically without you having any interruption, right? So this is a hard problem. And with Erlang, we could do that, right? And that's why we started to use it. You could be moved over and the system could figure out that it's overloaded and start to move you over to another machine, another process, but without you noticing anything on the client side. Okay. Very interesting. So if I understand your stack correctly, it's you've got a chat box, for example, on the customer's website, and that's in, well, I guess it's just in React, React. And then that is going to be interfacing with a middleware kind of layer uh, that's in Elixir. And then that's interfacing with the Java backend. Yep, in some cases, and Java backend and lots of other backends. So endless number of microservices. But yeah, they're mostly Java based. 
Okay, so those microservices is are those like some are in Node or it's kind of free for all? Yeah, not free for all, but yeah, Node and Java, and so the whole microservices thing is a whole another interesting thing. Like when I was at HubSpot, we tra- we rewrote everything into Java and Python, mostly Java, and we ended up with like a you know thousand plus microservices. So we went crazy on the microservice thing, but microservices then create a whole another, and we still believe in the architecture, but it still cre- creates a whole another set of problems, which is like, how do you trace things? You know, how do you understand what's happening when you're dealing with these frameworks, whether it's React or whether it's Elixir or any of these kind of things where there's so many levels of abstraction in the in the language itself, like traceability becomes a big problem, right? Like you can't figure out like, where is this thing going wrong? And how do you measure it and all these kind of things. But this is a problem we've been dealing with in at least my time in computer science forever. And so like we go from distributed everything to like, let's go back to, you know, everything together and then let's go distributed again. And then let's go back to everything monolithic again. And I think we're kind of in the middle or the beginning of moving from a highly distributed kind of microservice kind of thinking to there are some cases where some things need to be a little bit monolithic. And you see that in some of the work that some companies do, whether it's Facebook or others, like there are a lot of things that run in a monolithic kind of mode. Yes. Well, or, or, or even Google also, because yes, the, the, the whole, the mono repo idea, I would love to do a show about this, but my understanding is that at, at both Google and Facebook, they have a kind of virtual file system that makes it easier for people to deal with the mono repo. And so you can just kind of open anything and it's like it, it all exists on your local machine. Uh, but I don't completely understand the, the deployment model. If but you it's ever really do a show on that, I'd love to hear it because th- that's like so many things that uh, you hear over the years that I don't understand either. How it would work, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, <laughs> I'd like to know. Well, I was just talking to somebody yesterday, an engineer who I really respect, and he was talking about how he's like, I think there's a kind of a microservices industrial complex where, you know, <laughs> these companies have, you know, like the, the service provider companies have have sort of convinced people that you need to have microservices. As an engineer, like the microservice idea is really appealing because you're like, yeah, it's like the Unix philosophy. You have to do one, do one thing really well, and you have these, you know, partitioned things that can independently scale up and down, but then it leads to this high quantity of problems, like like you said, distributed tracing or like how you're doing logging, and in many ways the monolith makes these things a lot easier, you know. But there's not as many. But you know, the cynical view is, oh, these companies are kind of pushing this because it encourages you to make a big refactoring, and then they can sell you all these microservice support tools. I'm not really like cynical in, in either direction, but I think it's kind of like what you said, like it's just a back and forth. And it's like, how are you doing this? And then, or can you offload a lot of this to just like manage services? Like, why are you rolling these things on by yourself at all? Totally. Totally. I agree. Uh, I think, you know, I think it's, we're just humans and we overcorrect all the time. If we, if something works well, then we go to the extreme and overdo it. And then nature takes over and we have to ebb, ebb back the other way. Just like the tides, it's like the moon rising, you know, and setting and the sun setting. It's all the same thing. Like nature just ebbs and flows. And so we overcorrect and then we got to go back the other way and then we'll overcorrect in that direction. Then, you know, hopefully over the long range, we are somewhere in the middle but we're constantly going from one extreme to the other. What is your deployment model for these different services? We have, for a long time now, three companies now believed in this, you know, which I think everyone does at this point, but it was kind of, it was interesting back then, which was like this, that we constantly ship, we're constantly shipping to production. And so we've always invested heavily in engineers being able to come in kind of as their first day and be able to ship something instantaneously to production. So, you know, I think the shipping model is interesting. The more interesting part is that in order to support this, that we've had to invest, again, in, in all of these companies into kind of a pretty elaborate gating model. So, like, how do you gating infrastructure? So, and what I mean by that is, like, if you're constantly releasing to production, like, how do you gate access to certain things that are not ready to a subset of users and how do you control those gates or switches, whatever you want to call it in your world, and who has the ability to do that? How do you roll back from all that stuff? And that whole gating, there are now companies that I've seen one or two that have come out with that are building stuff in this area, but we've largely homegrown that stuff uh, in the past and currently. Yeah, LaunchDarkly, I'm talking yes, to them. Yes, exactly. Very They're the soon. ones I was thinking about. 
Yeah, the feature flagging stuff. And I think there's also Split. Yes, that's the other one. But before that, you had to build it on your own. And it's super core to what we're doing from a release model standpoint, because everything else breaks if you don't have this. We need to be able to you know, target a beta group users for a specific part of the product. And it could be a whole product, or it could be a screen, or it could be you know fields within a screen. It can be like all of these kind of things. And we invested a ton in that at HubSpot and before, and we invest a ton in that right now. That sounds like not fun software to build <laughs> when you're, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty far away from uh, the core competency of what you would want to do at Drift, but I can understand why you needed to build it in that time frame because it's super core to your business. Totally. And I'll tell you one piece of software, which is even less fun for our team to build. And that's the ability for, it's related, it's the ability for a customer to opt in to a feature. And then having, so imagine we roll something out to our customer base. Some of our large customers, it's hard for them to adopt a new change, even if it's a subtle change to a screen, because they've kind of trained so many people on the other way, even if this way is way better. And so we allow them to opt in and let's say you have three months, six months, whatever the amount of time is to opt into this new screen, but it's on their terms. You can imagine how much, you know, engineers would hate this because you would have to, you have to keep both versions of your code being able to run throughout this. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah not nightmare. fun. Not fun. So on the other side of the spectrum, any interesting learnings from higher level managed services, whether you're talking about things like, you know, Sage, AWS SageMaker or, you know, some fancy new API that I haven't heard of, any NLP APIs or things like that. These higher level managed services are really fascinating to me. Yeah, they're interesting. I mean, we we look at lots of different versions of those. We look at lots of different technologies like, like a Snowflake or what have you, all of those kind of systems. I think, you know, the biggest learning for us is that is actually on the on the learning side is that we have that one, the customer doesn't care how something is done. And so whether that's machine learning, whether that's some hard coded rule, whether that's, you know, a thousand people in the background doing something, you know, by hand, they don't really care. Those are like internal problems. And so we try to mask all that. And so one of the learnings we've learned is that in model creation, like, you there are times when you can rely on you know the the crowd right the wisdom of the crowd right with people to be able to like label things or do things in certain ways to understand your data model and that's something that we kind of taken from um, both Facebook and Google, right? Like Google, like nobody cares that, you know, for years when you would Google, like there were people, there were like 3,000 people who were like fixing the index by hand uh, throughout the world. Like they just knew about PageRank or they didn't even know about that. They just knew that they returned the right thing. And then over time, you know, the, the proportion of people to models to what have you changes, but nobody cares. And Facebook the same, like every ad gets hand approved by another 2,000 people, right, and hand-reviewed. Some of that is moving into technology. Some of that is moving into models. But, like, the customer doesn't care. That's, like, an internal engineering problem. And I think as, as engineers and as builders of products, we have to focus on that end user experience and not surface our decisions and our, you know, the things that we care about up to the customer level. So it's more like a top-down kind of thing, like what customer problem is there today and do we need a new cloud data warehouse to solve it? Well, maybe, but we should start with the problem and then figure out the solution rather than looking at the fancy tool set and seeing what fancy trouble that can get us into. And knowing that sometimes that'll be a model, sometimes that'll be a technology, sometimes that you'll have people that augment the model, who knows? Like, But that, again, is all our problem, not customer problems. Is there a significant amount of quote-unquote machine learning infrastructure that you have or machine learning experts in-house? You're, you're using that word model. Are you referring to the machine learning model? Yes. So machine learning models and different prediction models, right? So we have ML people, we have, you know, what we call uh, statisticians in the past and people call data scientists today. Like we have lots of those different people who are making, trying to make predictions on data, back testing, doing a lot of testing of that data and figuring out like where the simple, like to use your kind of um, Gmail example earlier, like where are the simple places that we can surface this, some of this stuff. Like again, Gmail took a long time to go from 
simple, you know, canned replies to like the type of head kind of stuff that you see today. Took a large data set and a lot of people working on that problem, but they they surfaced it, I believe, in the right way of like they didn't get over their skis and try to write emails for you. Like they just did simple, you know, suggestions. And then over time, once those got better, they could do what they're doing today with their type of head. We kind of look at it the same way. And we have engineers and, and ML people looking at stuff and surfacing little improvements throughout the system. So you've got all these different inputs for a, a particular business, like you know the, what the person is typing and, and the, the kind of messaging they're using, what when they schedule their meetings, and then how they make their way through the funnel. And once you get a reasonable set of customers for a given business, you might be able to make predictions about, you might be like, let's say there's a salesperson who's using Drift and they're looking at their leads at the beginning of their day and they're wondering like, okay, well, I can schedule calls with six people today. Who are the six people that are the highest probability or the highest expected value leads that I should focus on? And that's a kind of opportunity where you could inject machine learning, right? You could, because you could have this, you know, backlog of data that you can model that kind of decision-making on. Is that a good example of, of where you can use machine learning effectively? Yeah, definitely. We we do it in uh, kind of predicting where to route the customer. We use it in predicting what we should reply back to. So do we have knowledge that we've extracted from a knowledge base or an internal a repository to reply back to the customer and try to solve their problem. And then we do it on the kind of agent side, whether that's a salesperson or what have you, in terms of uh, kind of like the Gmail example. Here's a reply that you can reply with. Here's, you know, the sentiment of a customer, you know, while you're typing to them. All of those kind of things, which are like metadata and, and clues about like how to best have this conversation. And then as those get better over time, we'll surface them and and take action directly uh, to the customer. And how do you test the effectiveness of those models? Like when you route somebody with a machine learning model prediction system, how do you know that that's actually better than just making a random choice? Yeah, that's a testing, lots of testing. The good thing for us or the thing that makes it easier is that for our customers, we are tied to revenue. And so we tie into their existing CRMs, or if not, they use Drift as a CRM. And so the reason that that matters is that we can track the effectiveness of certain decisions down to the, the end purchase. So who is the salesperson I went to? How much opportunity from a dollar standpoint do we think they created in that conversation? How much of it is actually closed and they became a customer? How much of it was closed and they lost that opportunity? So we have all of those human steps in there because we tie back into the CRM and into that data set. I want to ask a more macro question. When this GDPR complexity started appearing for lots of companies, there was a lot of anxiety around it. And you know, I was talking to some SaaS companies, particularly SaaS companies related to kind of work that you're doing at Drift the, the, in the marketing area, and they were really unsure of how to respond to it. Did you have any engineering challenges that came up as you were trying to get GDPR ready? We definitely had some engineering challenges. I'd say we are kind of in the middle of SOC 2 compliance, which is another security kind of testing compliance uh, thing. That has a lot more engineering challenges to it because it's traceability and being audited and all these, these kind of things that we have to prove. The GDPR ones were more on the side of legal, psychology, a whole bunch of stuff, and a lot of kind of what you mentioned, which is a lot of people were unsure. And so even the people who may be asking the customer about GDPR compliance and how it works weren't sure how they were dealing with GDPR in their own business. And so so you have a lot of a set of a bunch of people who don't really know what this thing means because the, the way it was written was a little ambiguous all trying to be in compliance by a certain date. And so it was a lot more going back and forth than hard technical challenges. I'd say SOC 2 brings a lot more technical challenges, which are known. You know, people go through it right now, but it, it causes you to go through and re-examine your entire system and uh, your security and how you deal with certain things and who has access to, to different things. That one's been a lot harder for us, but it, it's not a deep technical challenge. 
you spent a good amount of time in in ad tech before you you shifted to marketing automation, sales automation. From that time in ad tech, I mean, ad tech. I spent a little bit of time in ad tech. I worked in an ad tech company briefly, and it did kind of shock me some of the the uh, data ambiguity questions, like like, wow, is this is this surveillance? Is this subject to fraud? You know, the the amount of fake users, the amount of fake clicks, and and fake bots and stuff like I, that that was really eye-opening I, I saw that kind of three or four years before it really made its way into the mainstream I think it's still has the, the amount of bots online and how that relates to advertising hasn't really been fully uh, grasped with by by the public but did your time in ad tech did you sense that this kind of you know backlash against technology companies or this the kind of the cynicism the growing cynicism that that the public is feeling in response to kind of an advertising driven internet did you see that coming definitely although i part of the time i felt like it was interesting because there was the starts of it you know and this was in the mid 2000s you know like 2005 6 something like that around that time there was a lot of questions around cookies and this, and I, I remember there was something that they were trying to pass on. There was a cookie law they were trying to pass back then, and so many people were nervous about that stuff. But you know, if you go deep, and they should be, but if you go deep into the marketing data world that's existed since you know basically we've started to use credit cards heavily, like that world is actually way crazier than anything online, right? Of like the data that's being sold and like. Whether it was even companies that were in financial services that would sell, you know, the exact uh, real-time access to data that other brokers were looking at certain stocks and monitoring certain things in real-time in their terminals. Like, it's kind of crazy once you go deep in this world. And that the stuff that was online back then was, there wasn't as much PII online at that point. And it was interesting. But I did start to sense that. I, I you know, I, I left my company, Compete and Lookery, and then two different companies. And then I, I started a project called Ghostry. And Ghostry is a privacy uh, browser extension that I originally wrote for Firefox. And now it's Firefox and Chrome. It's owned by Mozilla at this point. But I started that project and I got that up to three or four million people in the first like six months using it as a way to, to uncover basically the different trackers that were running on all of the different websites and what they meant and what kind of data were they capturing, who they were, what was the company behind that. Because I, I would know that I would visit any, you know, especially media websites like a news website, and there'd be 50 to 100 different trackers that were going off in a, in a chain that you weren't even aware of, you know, all trading different pieces of information. But I didn't think anyone knew that. And so I created that browser extension, one, to highlight that, and then two, to let you block different versions of that stuff now from, from capturing your information. And I think now there's, I don't know, 40, 50 million people that use grocery every day. Yeah, and you founded Ghostery and Performable in the same year. So both of these companies were acquired within a year as well. That's a very fast turnaround time for the creation and and sale of two businesses. Do you have any particular lessons from that time period? Or could you just tell me, like, how were you just in some kind of creative, overly creative state? Or was it just you, you had developed domain expertise and... Tell me how you create and sell two companies in the same year. I think the important thing, the important lesson that for everyone was that, you know, I had started a bunch of companies and projects up until that point. And the way that I go about it had radically changed by the time I started Ghostry and then Performable, right? I started both of those based on a change in the world. And the change for Ghostry was what we were just talking about, right? That people were becoming more privacy aware, that people needed to be able to see this stuff, and that the amount of trackers and things that were going on in in the ad tech world were exploding. So I based it upon momentum that was happening already in the market and then built a product around that. And the same thing with Performable, very different kind of approach, but it was the same thing. I saw something happening in the market and I built something around that change. And the reason that that matters is that the human change, the behavior change had already happened in the, in the world. I wasn't trying to create any behavior change. What I was trying to do was to meet an unmet need that was in the market that had suddenly appeared because there was a shift in the market. 
very different than the, my engineering approach to building companies, you know, before that, which was, you know, I just want to create a product, I have an idea, and it's all idea or kind of engineering driven, or it was for me, I, I still think that's super common for people. And it wasn't based on a change in the world. And what that means is most of the time your ideas are wrong. Uh, most of the time, if it's a new idea, you have to get people to change their habits, which is impossible, to do things in your way because you have a better widget, a better approach. That works sometimes, but you got to be patient and uh, wait for the behavior change to happen. And I changed my approach. And that's also in starting Drift, you know. We probably could have sold Drift many times uh, by now, but you know, I didn't want to sell another company. And starting Drift, I wanted to not sell this company and try to build a company for the long term, an enduring company. And but I based it on again a behavior change that already happened. In our case, it was messaging. The mess, the shift towards messaging was undeniable. Like messaging from a technology stack standpoint, there's no difference from 20, 25 years ago. You know, there are different technologies that we use, but Slack is, from a use case standpoint, is not different than IRC 25 years ago, right? And I often show people inside our engineering and product team who don't know what IRC is, never used it, you know, a screenshot of an IRC client from 20 years ago and then Slack next to each other, and they're blown away. They're like, whoa, whoa, it's exactly the same. Like everything is the same. And they have never seen that. And I'm like, yeah, that the point isn't that, isn't that they're different or that they're the same. The point is that the world is now ready because of mobile, because of this, and not that this Slack has done amazing things with their product and we love it, but it's already a pattern that exists. Same thing with text messaging or iMessages or WhatsApp or whatever. Like we had technology like that 25 years ago, but we had subscale markets as, you know, a million of us using it or 5 million or whatever the number was, but now billions are using it. And the reason that that matters is that the behavior changes already happened. It's now normal. And now you can build something in a much larger ecosystem. And I think for entrepreneurs and engineers who want to build something, really pay attention to, is there momentum already in the world happening that I can apply this to versus trying to create your own momentum from scratch? I'm glad you say that because I think that's that's really important to emphasize because I have gone down a couple rabbit holes that have gone absolutely nowhere, spending a lot of time, a lot of resources on projects that just that nobody wants, nobody needs. Engineers do this all the time. This is this might be the biggest mistake that engineer founders that make. Okay, so you have you've done that. So it was before you made that shift, I guess we'll you know we'll close on this question because I know we're up against time. But I guess how long did it take you in your product development career? to finally acknowledge that you need to make something that people actually want rather than exhibiting your creative self and just building what you want to build? Unfortunately, a decade. And so that's why I like doing a podcast like yours and being on, on shows because I'm just trying to share what I've gone through. And hopefully there's a person listening out there that I'm going to help them save 10 years by listening to this story at this exact moment in time. And uh, it took me 10 years to learn that. So I learned the hard way. This is not something that I was just, I knew. And because we all have biases and all of us, and so all my biases led me to bang my head in the wall and build things that nobody cared about for a long, long time. Okay, well, that's really reassuring to hear because I've done some of that and it really hurts and it makes you feel like a complete idiot. But it's good to hear that you're a success story of coming back from that. <laughs> so if you have enough shots on goal, yeah, you too can be a success story. <laughs> David, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. You want to plug your podcast real quick? Tell people why they should listen to it and, and where they can find you. Sure. We have a podcast called Seeking Wisdom. Seekingwisdom.io is the easiest way to find it. And basically, it's a podcast where we just share the stuff that we're learning, the books that we're reading, the mentors that we're working with. And I just try to share through myself and guests like things that we're learning and give back to other people who are curious about the learning process. Yes, I can endorse it myself. I subscribe to it and listen to it in preparation for the show. And it's it's great, great production quality, great conversations. So thanks again, David. Appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks again for having me. Wow.